Welcome back to another episode of The Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting with Bruce Kelly. Uh, we are talking today with Tim Bello, Managing Partner at Merchant Investment Management. A little bit about Merchant. Uh, I've been writing about them a little bit the past couple of weeks. They've been announcing some minority investments in wealth management firms. Uh, Merchant, as Tim is eager to talk about is not your garden variety private equity firm. It's not a private equity firm at all, Tim will tell you, but uh, Bruce and I are gonna find out uh, where merchants' money's coming from and why they're so darn interested in the wealth management space. Hey, Tim, how you doing? Jeff, hello, great to hear your voice. Hi, Bruce, and thanks to you both for having me on today. I'm super excited to be here and uh, greatly appreciate the time in advance. Thanks for being here. I found this to be kind of a fascinating story. I cover the, the, well, we all, Bruce and I both cover the wealth management space very closely and we, we see the consolidation going on out there and the drivers behind that. Um, we've written a lot about private equities influence. Uh, an earlier story I wrote involving Merchant, um, you, you uh, polite, politely and respectfully corrected me for calling you guys a private equity firm um, and we, we, we buried the hatchet. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> so we did. We did bury it. Yeah, so Jeff really pissed you off, huh, Tim? <laughs> not even close. Not, you know, not even close. I mean, he's he's so darn good with the way he writes. I, I, I it's really hard to get angry at him. So oh no. wow. Well, Tim, <laughs> let, let's start with Merchant. I know that you guys have invested or have minority stakes in about fifty companies, combined assets yep. uh, around one hundred and ten billion. That's correct. Tell us what merchant investment management is and how this is not or distinct from what we think of as a traditional private equity fund or firm. Yeah, no, look, happy happy to go through all that. I mean, and it's interesting. I'm about to start to speak and I notice the first words or the second word out of my mouth is going to be the word private, mm-hmm. uh, but it won't be followed by equity. It'll be private, private company, uh, private partnership uh, and a business that's really been built by uh, friends. Uh, who have worked with, for, and against each other for a long time. And, you know, sometimes you get lucky and you're good at once. And you can kind of align the stars and, you know, come to the center on the same vision. And a few years ago, after thinking about it for many years prior, we all realized, you know what, the time and the place is now. This was back in 2016 when we started formulating the idea. Um, now is the time to come together and enter into the independent uh, wealth management space, uh, broadly speaking, which is also important. And, um, Incentives drive behavior and capital structure will always uh, dictate the outcome. Um, and in this case, it's no different. And those two statements are big, re- are big reasons behind why we built this as an operating company. Uh, in addition to that, um, we didn't really want to look to have investors. We always wanted to be aligned with partners, mm-hmm. right? Not only partners on the side of the recipients of our capital and our time and our value add, uh, but also partners as it relates to the expansion of our balance sheet, which is also something that we've worked very hard at. It's a very important thing to focus on because let's face it, if you're raising a fund, which which is which is something I've done in my life, uh, and by the way, I just want to say that I believe in private equity. I'm an investor in private equity. M- most of the clients uh, that qualify for it across the independent wealth management and general wealth management industry are private equity investors, mm-hmm. right? There's great companies like Blackstone and Apollo and Carlisle and KKR, and this is not to knock them at all. Um, but one of the things that I think is incredibly important and almost essential uh, in the wealth management space, the business that's driven by people working with people, is long-term, good, durable timeline, uh, the ability to allow for natural evolution of not only career but business. And I got to tell you, when when your 
not stuck with, but need to focus on five to seven year money, sometimes the growth trajectory and the experience of a business gets disrupted. And I can tell you this right now, we started Merchant, in, like I said, in the idea in 2016 and action in 2017. And, and if you just do the quick math, we're in 2022. Um, if I was running a fund today with my partners and it was a seven-year timeline, uh, I'd be trying to get money back in 24 months. And that would not be very fun. You're kind of getting a little bit ahead of us now. For our audience, we want you to understand that we, the, the five to seven-year timeline that Tim was referencing is the what is kind of known as how long most private equity funds uh, hold their investments. And that's a generalization, but merchant investment management, as, as Tim has explained to me, doesn't have that timeline because they don't have a fund. They, that's the, the distinction I was, I'm trying to make here. Private equity firms, they, they gather assets from outside investors, put a fund together, take those assets and invest in private companies like registered investment advisors sometimes. Merchant, as Tim says, takes the money off their balance sheet. Now to 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 get to get the money, you guys got to have some kind of a monster balance sheet with obviously partners with some deep pockets because that's as big as your balance sheet can get then is is from your partnerships, right? And leverage too. Yeah, it's a good point. Both good points. Um first off, we run the business in a in a, I would call it, uh, how would I say it? Almost an irresponsibly under-levered type way. <laughs> so, so we don't, we don't, we don't, we're not levered, uh, believe it or not, uh, into the market right now. The, the money, where, yeah, your, your question is the right one. Where does the money come from? And if you look at what we've done and what we hope we're going to do, we need a substantial amount of capital to do it. So, so where's it coming from? Um, and when we started the business, there was really, you know, three of us, then five of us, and then nine of us who are capital partners. And that can only take you so far. And so at a certain point, you got to figure out who else can you add to the, the partnership community, not, not as it relates to the firms that we're investing in, but the, but the families and the groups that are aligned with us with, with our balance sheet, which is really the question you're asking. And um, look, we've gone into the market to our extended, I'll, I'll call it family and friends, and we've, we've brought more money onto the balance sheet now twice. It's, there's enough there at the pace we're at today where we can continue with this approach in the market for the next two to three years. Uh, and still be in a very strong uh, capital position to continue to, um, you know, make investments. Are you only investing in uh, wealth management firms? To date, we've we've made a few investments in services businesses. Like we're a minority, uh, non-controlling partner uh, and investor in a firm called Advisor Assist, which has mm -hmm. been around for the better part of a decade and a half. And it's a peer to Brian Hamburger's firm, Market Council, and the RA in a Box business. But you know, so we're invested there and we, we love that part of the market because there's, there's really something to be said um, for those that align with the essential parts of the supply chain, right? The scaffolding to the industry. We also have an investment with a firm called Wealth Advisor Growth Network, Wagon, which is run by two really good friends and great executives that used to sit side by side with uh, with Bill Crager uh, in the investment business. So John Phoenix and Jay Hummel, who are, who are partners of ours and run Wagon. And so the other investments, though, that we have uh, those are those are investments direct into uh, wealth management firms like Private Advisor Group and like some of the ones that like Fusion, which you which you which you wrote about, Jeff, and businesses like that. That's the primary business we're in. Why would an RIA choose Merchant or a firm like Merchant as opposed to working with a more traditional private equity firm? A lot of times, people are looking for one of two things: they're either looking for a partner or they're looking for an investor. And those are those are honestly, you know. Slightly different, but but over time they become drastically different. I think, um, and and both are equally good. It's different strokes for different folks. But for somebody who's sitting there, 
and wondering, you know, hey, how am I going to really truly monetize this today, here and now in the near term? Merchant's not the right business partner for them. We're not even the right investor for them. They are probably better suited for somebody who's going to come in and take a significant position that's controlling or, 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 or a full takeout. Um, and, and by default, Jeff, uh, just with the question you asked and the answer I gave, it immediately takes away part of our addressable market. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's one key component right, right up front. And by the way, there's been plenty of conversations, some with really good friends that are neighbors, um, where we've started talking because you talk to people you trust and that you like. And we start to go down the road and they start to understand what we do as a business and how we're partners and long term. And we want to help people grow and be acquisitive and all these things. And they step back and they go, listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. That all sounds fine and good, but it's not where my focus is right now. I'm looking to get max, max value for my life's work. And in those cases, you know who they are. Uh, we've proactively pointed uh, what would otherwise be considered prospective targets for us to other uh, capital sources who some people think are our competitors. And um, that's what we do. Try to help people find out what it is they want and help them get there. Okay. Uh, Bruce, anything for Tim? Yeah. Hey, Tim. Uh, thanks again for coming on. You mentioned private advisor group. I wanted to ask you about that. But how many um, wealth management deals have you done recently, uh, say in 2021 or so far in 2022? Yeah. And how many sure. have you done in total? So let me just make notes here. Let me just say one thing that I think might make you chuckle. One of the things we focus on here, and we've done it since before day one, is the, and this is Jeff, this is how you and I have become friends, right? It's like the language we use. And so it's funny, I correct myself all the time, even in internal meetings. I'll catch myself saying, well, we've got this transaction, we've got this deal. And either I correct myself or one of my partners does, and I say, Tim, these aren't transactions, they're not deals. They're partnerships and they're alignment exercises. So, well, they're investments. I mean, you're investing, right? No, no, nothing you said is wrong. I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying that to let you into the fabric of how we run our business and the culture we try to create, I think the words are a really strong thing and they they drive the way that what you say is how you behave. So I even every day say to myself, well, okay, Tim, you know, you got to remember these are real partnerships. They're long term. Um, and you got to remind yourself of that. And so to answer your question, if you're merchant, right, because we got to hold true to our promise. Um, we, we, we technically have done 49 of these partnerships, so just under 50 um, together. I want to say if I were to add everything up statistically precise, it's about $108.5 billion. So let's call it nearly 110, which is what we've said. Some other interesting stats are that that grouping, that community, as we call it, represents just under 1,600 financial advisors and staff, uh, around 150,000 households across the country. And we're in 65 cities, uh, 28 states, and across three countries. So we're also an international business. You all have kept this very quiet, though. It seems only recently, right? Bruce, you're, you're spot on. That's a theme for us. If you, if you actually so look. Why? Because let me just interject if I, if I could. Please, because no, please don't do it. I, I really first came across you guys with the private advisor group transaction. They're very well known. They're the biggest unit branch, whatever you want to call them, network at LPL. So they're yep. very, very well known, obviously. Uh, they have R.J. Moore as the CEO. They brought him in. Sure do. Yep. Uh, last year. So that's another kind of high-flying move <laughs> from mm-hmm. those guys. I thought it was, you know, is, is does private advisor group represent, and they have something like 600 advisors and $30 billion in assets or something. They're massive, right? Um, is that the biggest tran- uh, transaction or investment that, that you've made to date? And then why take more of a public role 
at, at this point? Are you guys just sick and tired of seeing Rudy Adolph get all the, all the press or, or what? <laughs> Yeah, you know, you pick Rudy probably not for a reason, but maybe. Uh, well, he's my very outspoken, so, you know. He is, he is. And actually, you know, I remember sitting on a panel with Lenny Chang years ago, and actually, funnily enough, Matt Brinker was on that panel when he was with Joe Duran at United Capital. Now Matt and I are partners, okay. and now Rudy's old general counsel, Dave Morazic, is our general oh. counsel. So it's all circular. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> no, look, I mean, you know, we've <laughs> this is this is good. I'm enjoying this actually. You know, start wherever you want. You're, you're to. We got plenty of time. Now, look, with Private Advisor Group, are they the largest we've 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 created a partnership with based upon the metrics? You, I'll answer that question in two ways. Uh, AUM wise, right. yes. Advisor headcount wise, absolutely. From our balance sheet to theirs, yes. So, so yes to everything. Okay, and um, obviously that's a that's a significant risk position for us. And it's a calculated risk position, and it's one I would do 100 more times. If, as you said before, there was another R.J. Moore, there was another John Hyland, there was another Pat Sullivan, right. and, and frankly, they're hard to find. I mean, John and Pat are really embedded <laughs> into that firm. It's, it's uh, as, as much as anyone people. can be, I think, in, the wealth, in, that, in that type of wealth management space. They're good people, too. And I, and, I, and I said it, I did, a, I did an internal call with, with all the advisors. And, I, and the one thing I absolutely said, I don't rehearse these things. I don't take notes, none of that stuff. And I said to, uh, on the call, I said, look, and I was doing, doing it from their conference room. And I said, there's a feeling of this, that this company has created despite its size that is familial and boutique and special. And I looked at John Hyland, and I looked at Pat Sullivan, and I looked at RJ, who was sitting right across the table from me. And I said, you guys are great. You know, and, and they, they, you know, if you look at what they've built and the ability to retain and keep people happy, despite the, the size. I mean, they, they've done a special thing and they continue to do a special thing and it's gonna hopefully, well, I know it'll get better uh, from here. So anyway. And, and then why the, the sudden emergence? Um, I mean, are you trying to get publicity from investment news and the other trade pubs because you're gonna go public or? No, Bruce, I'm just so insecure. I'd had enough. I gotta start talking about this. No, no, no. The truth of the matter is, is I'm actually, we're all private people. Uh, you know, look, I worked with Anthony Scaramucci for a bunch of years. I was partners with Cheryl. I was one of the in initial original founders with, with him and the team. You know, I was early on at Dynasty. Cheryl Penny, you mean, um, of course. I, yeah, sure. And yeah, they yeah. just and I, and by the way, filed, registered, right? Yeah, and, and I couldn't be happier for him. Uh, that guy is at the forefront of everything. He's always been a proactive thinker. He's been an amazing executor from the time he first started at Smith Barney back in the day. And, you know, I was shoulder to shoulder with him from the day I left Skybridge to the day that business uh, you know, really got off the ground and I was there for five years and I watched the whole thing in, in the front seat with him and Ed and the team. And um, why, why, why do what we're doing now in terms of getting out into the market? Look, I think at a certain point, it's a push and a pull. Some of it is quality control around messaging. Some of it is realizing at a certain point, you have to, you have to get out there. You got to stand shoulder to shoulder with the advisors. You got to stand shoulder to shoulder with the brand. You got to build the brand because the brand is bigger than anybody that works at Merchant. The brand is everybody we're invested with. And in order to do that justice, you have to be out there. I have to do things like this. And by the way, I don't have to do this. I actually want to do this. It's starting to get really fun. And we're through after now five years of this, this hard press. We're, we're, th we're through the point, I think, of where it's, it's constant pressure. And now it's like, okay, let's really embed with our business partners and figure out what's next. You know, and it was just time. I mean, look, we, we, we brought Matt Brinker into the partnership. Well, you have $110 billion in assets, you said, right? Yeah, it's about so, time. It's about time for us to you get well, out there. And so. when, when, Jeff, I just have a couple more questions, um, if you don't mind. When you did the private advisor group transaction, I think, you, and these other transactions, that these investments that mm -hmm. Jeff has written about, you haven't released yep. terms of the deal, right? That's correct. So what do you think about valuations 
um, in the marketplace. You know, we're hearing 15, anywhere from 15 <laughs> to 20 times EBITDA for a certain kind of firm with a younger management team, you know, a strong management team that's going to stick around and, 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 and the like and, and focus on growing the business at the higher end of that. Is that accurate, do you think, or what? Yeah, look. We're all insane and smart at the same time. I, 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 I think it's like art, and I'm not, I'm not going to dance around the answer. I'm going to answer it directly in just a second. But I think also some of these comp- – look, I think the valuations are justified, I guess, is the real answer. And I think they're going to stay there. I think they're going to continue. I think they're going to go up. I think the public markets are going to continue to look at this asset class as something that's very interesting. I think the, um, the components of these securities, whether they're private or not, uh, are very attractive. You have a, growthing, a growthy yield type of instrument, which is a very rare financial hybrid. Um, and, you know, if you look at merchant, that's kind of what we're made up of, growth and yield. Uh, not every other firm in the marketplace that, you know, is in our peer group is like that. Um, with that said, look, I mean, you know, I think the multiples are justified. I think the question is, though, uh, is it about value or valuation, number one? And number two, when somebody says they're getting 15 times, think back to the wirehouse. I mean, you and I could point to a, a whole bunch of brokers who are now advisors who were objective, despite being in one institution, and they were paid, what, 100% times of what? And how much of it was given up front? So, so you know, these, these, these structures, these proposals, this, this dialogue in the market today, my question back to the market is, how much of this is really what it sounds like in actuality? You're referring to bonuses okay. for wirehouse brokers, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'm referring 200 to- 200 times their annual revenue, 300 yeah. times, 350 times yeah. their annual revenue, yeah, and, et cetera, in terms of a- that's right, Bruce. A note that would be locked up for five, seven, or ten years or something like that. Yeah, yeah and, and by the way, like, earnouts are totally fair and just and helpful. And I'm not saying Merchant wouldn't do things like that because we have. But in a lot of ways, it's the financial engineering that's getting people to the to the teen multiples. And again, I'm not saying they're not deserved, but, um, you know. And oh, by the way, those are full, full takeouts in most right. cases, right? That's for a full control position and on a relative basis to what we do, to what my buddies at Kudu do. Um, I don't know if Kurt's gotten into the space yet. I know Carl obviously does it. I think more in sort of a minority, the super minority space. But, you know, we're, we're not all doing, you know, transactions or I should say partnerships along those lines and with those multiples. Right. So Right. Yeah, I think I just think it's fascinating. There seems to be a new entrant every month into this, Jeff, you know? Yeah. Hey, um, Tim, I want to I want to go back to the for a minute, the distinction between merchant and traditional private equity in the sense that we know and you can trace the the pace of consolidation in the in the wealth management state space to a lot of private equity money coming in there. But sure. the last three stories I've written about merchant uh, investments in RIAs, mm-hmm. each of the firms that was was taken that took the investment money from merchant. Uh, mm-hmm. They kind of downplayed pre- uh, mergers and acquisitions, saying that this is not what sure. they were. They were more focused on the succession planning yep. benefits of a merchant investment. So it's it's still outside money. Why is it not kind of driving the same way? Talk about the succession planning component of this. The biggest differentiating component here is not in the language, but it's in the term of the capital. Right. So if you took the structure and you threw it away and you forgot the word private and equity and all that stuff, two things now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. One is term, timeline. Right. We're 15 plus year money. We go longer. There's not too many fund vehicles or vehicles in general out there that that are that long term. Um, we, we are for better or worse. It's what we are. That's one. Two, um, the, the capital partners, which I think is the right way to describe 
the investors in our business, keyword business, they're owners in our company just like I am, just like Mark is, just like Scott Prince is, just like Matt Brinker is. If you and I call up our financial advisor and say, get me into Blackstone Fund 23, it's a wonderful investment. We get invested into the business, into the fund, but we're not owners of Blackstone's company. We're not partners in the business. We're, we're investors and we'll get our money back. And that's, that's a distinct difference in the way we've structured this. I mean, if I look at our, if I look at our community of capital partners, they are some of the more private but influential people in the financial services space, also beyond. And I think one day when the time's right, uh, we could be in a position as merchant to bring that value add beyond the capital into the market. And I think the market will step back and go, okay, now we really get what these folks have been doing. They're trying to build a community of connections that's local and global, and it involves their investors, and it also involves their capital partners, and it also involves all the firms they're partnered with. And wow, this is something pretty unique. So that's what we're aiming okay. for. So the, the structure, and you and I have talked about this before, but I want to get it to our audience. The, the structure as as it works, you guys have only done minority investments so far. You Correct. determine the valuation, your investment, and then you take out your piece of their revenues based on your original investment, right? Yeah, we take money. You, you described it perfectly. We take our money off our balance sheet, and we hit a button, and the wire goes over to them. They can either take the money and do what they want with it out of the company, or they can leave the money on the balance sheet of their company. Um, and your valuation description is right too, right? To oversimplify it, these businesses generate a top line. They generate a distributable bottom line. We put what we, what we, we, put what we think is a fair multiple on that profit number. Mm -hmm. uh, we create a valuation and we multiply it by 20% if that's the percentage we're, we're investing in. And then we're partners in 20%. Technically, it's 19.9, which, which you know. Right. Um, it's nine, we're really 19.9 to 24.9. Um, and once we, we become partners, we participate on a go forward basis, quarter over quarter, uh, in any partner distributions associated with the company. Whether it goes up or down, we, we go up or down, right? Mm -hmm. So there's days where, like I'll tell you, in March of 2020, right, like the rest of the world, you're sitting there and you, were, uh, you underwrite a business, I'll be simple, to make $10 and it's going to make seven. Um, you're shoulder to shoulder with those operators, and that's pure partnership. So, yeah. what's preventing you from going beyond twenty four point nine percent? Why the focus on minority investments? It's twofold. Um, some of it's behavioral, right? You know, somebody gives you a pile of money and tells you you're not in charge anymore. You probably wake up later the next day. So, right. You know, we, we don't want to. We don't want to be in that position. It's not that it's a bad business. It's not what we want to do. We, we, you know, we want to. We want to be in a minority non control, but. A way where, let's think about this, right? If you own 80% of a business and I own 20% of a business, but I'm telling you and you trust me that I'm going to work as hard if I own 20 and you're still going to work as hard as if you own 100, that's probably a pretty good situation, right? We're both energized. We're both aligned. Mm -hmm. We're bottom line aligned. And uh, you haven't taken enough off the table to not care anymore. So for me, that's the incentive to drive the behavior thing we talked about before. And the more we can be side by side with people like that, the better. However... In certain cases, and this is where I think we're going as a company, because we like to react and we should react and we have to react to market movements, where there is where there are situations where the people are right, the business is right, the alignment valuation is fair, I do think merchant is going to start to move into a position where we're going to go above 24.9. So maybe it's just us preventing ourselves from doing that. There's really nothing more beyond that. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we got some news then. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about is... Uh, <laughs> the, the, the SEC uh, came out a few days ago and talked about uh, starting to 
increase their oversight of private equity and other alternative investment uh, funds. I don't know if this would apply to merchant, but I, I would like your feedback on this. The SECs, uh, they're interesting, right? And uh, and I've actually, over my career, had plenty of dealings with them. And I, and I think they're a perfectly good group. I'm not just saying that. And I'm, you know, I spent time with Troy Paredes, who was with the commission, and they're a good group of people and they're necessary. And they they, they prevent certain things. I think in this case, they're still going to continue to try to get their hands around this whole independent wealth movement. Um, we're more than happy to be helpful there as it relates to private equity. I mean, they understand what's going on. Um, will it impact merchant? I don't think so. Not any differently than it would have impacted us 12 months ago or 12 months forward from now. So uh, not really. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think we have a hard and fast opinion on, on, on that. Okay. Well, uh, on that note, then, we'll let you go, Tim. Uh, I want to thank you for being here, and, and please uh, keep us in the loop at Investment News when you guys are doing, uh, I won't call them transactions, uh, we'll make investments. <laughs> so, uh, you can call them whatever you right. want. Tim Bellow, <laughs> Managing Partner, Merchant Investment Management. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. This is fun. Take care. Thanks, Be well. Tim. Okay, uh, good stuff there from our friend Tim Bellow bringing us some insights on how the private money finds its way to RIAs. Not private equity, Jeff. Right, not private <laughs> equity. That's why I said private money. Private um, investing. I that, yeah, I don't know if that's even a thing, private money, but <laughs> let's try and coin that right now, right here and now. Now we're going to talk about Bruce Kelly's latest research project, looking at the, the crypto craze and how it is impacting Wall Street's, some of Wall Street's biggest firms. Uh, what are the brokerages doing, the big banks? Uh, Bruce, that's that's all I know right now. I can't wait to read your story. So uh, tell us what you're learning. Well, it's Jeff. As anyone who may have uh, read investment news over the past, you know, ten or fifteen or twenty years, it's always dangerous when I get my hands on a new set of products. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> unlike you, I'm not a I'm not like an investment management guy. You understand these things, and Sheffy under our colleague Mark Sheff. Uh, understands the legislative process about these things. And I just, I worry about how these things are sold. You know, uh-huh. you, you can talk about how they work in terms of the markets and everything like that. And I, so what, what I decided to look into, and it's a cover story that's going to run in a week or two from this podcast, so people can look for it at investment news, uh, investmentnews.com. Advisors are getting questions, right? From uh-huh. their clients about, hey, how can I invest in Bitcoin? And if you're a broker, at most broker dealers, you really don't want to have that conversation, or you're reluctant to have it, and you really don't have uh, any products that um, meet that demand because uh, of a variety of reasons. Most of the major firms, right, the large firms, they don't do transactions in cryptocurrencies, right? Right. So Walt Bettinger from Schwab last month said, hey, crypto is interesting, um, but we don't we don't broker it. We don't tra- we don't do transactions. Yeah, we have some products that are kind of crypto related, but what we don't clear in custody. Now, Fidelity does. Right. Mm-hmm. But they're really only one of the major firms out there that does that. So you can't if if you're a, a client of a financial advisor, you, you can't go to your advisor and say, sell me some Bitcoin because that advisor doesn't have access to that. What the advisor has access to are the types of ETFs and funds that you've written about that are future, say, ETF crypto ETF futures. So there's very limited access right now for financial advisors at broker dealers to sell 
these types of products. And as Mark Sheff has reported, uh, the whole industry is kind of waiting for the SEC to give its approval for uh, products like uh, Grayscale, right? The Grayscale uh, Trust, um, which actually owns Bitcoin, to uh, 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 transform into an ETF. And that would be an ETF that actually owns Bitcoin and is priced on its um, on on the spot price of Bitcoin, right? Like a right. like a gold ETF would be. The brokerage industry is kind of stymied right now, but its client. The danger is that financial advisors' clients are going to buy these products anyways. They're going to find a way to buy them, and they're not getting financial advice about them. So, mm. meanwhile, you have. RIAs that are being more aggressive about this, like the uh, Ritholtz Wealth Management. We had Blair Ducanay on here a couple of weeks ago, right? And talking a little bit about their new uh, crypto index that they set up, for example. RIAs, which are regulated by the SEC, do have a little bit more leeway in this space because they can just declare that they are uh, on their Form ADV that they are selling crypto-related investments or crypto-backed uh, investments and get on with it. But the SEC is going to focus on them like a laser. That's kind of what is the, the foundation of the reporting for the story. How long do you think that the brokerage industry can hold off? I don't, I don't think, well, I was speaking to one consultant and he said a couple of years ago, and this guy has been in the industry forever, uh, Mitch Abnett, um, and he said, you know, a couple of years ago, I was dealing with like, they do applications to be a broker dealer with FINRA, right? Or so if you're mm -hmm. in business and you want to become a broker dealer, you use, you use Mitch Abnet to apply for you. Uh, if you want to expand your line of business from selling mutual funds to ETFs, you go to Mitch Abnet and he applies for you because he knows the process inside and out. And typically that can take up to like three months, right? for a brokerage firm to expand its type of products that it wants to sell. He told me that maybe in 2019, 2020, they were doing like two or three applications for brokerages to, to get into the crypto business in some way. And that has gone up to like 15 or 20. Mm. And FINRA usually takes three months or six months to, approve, to vet and approve these applications. They're taking up to a year to do this now. Mm -hmm. So longer wait to get FINRA approval <laughs> uh, and more firms interested in uh, buying and selling this stuff. Crypto funds, in other words. Mm -hmm. Crypto, the asset itself, how that's going to be custodied and everything, I think is just a huge tech. Like, could you imagine a firm like Ameriprise or LPL or Raymond James getting into the crypto custody business? You know? Mm. Yeah, I, I, I don't see that happening in the future. Well, never say never, Bruce. You know, these these I think they're all going to have to James Bond direction. movie, isn't it? Never say never, uh, I think Bruce. Never say never again. I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> never say never to crypto. Yeah, never say never to crypto. There you go. That's your headline. All right, Jeff. Thanks a lot. Hey, Jeff, if it's Monday, it's time for another Investment News podcast. We want to thank our special guest, Tim Bellow the managing partner of Merchant Investment Management. We want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. You can find it, of course, at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. Reach out to Jeff 
on Twitter via his handle at BenjiRider. Mine is at BDNewsGuy. Stay tuned, and we'll be talking to you next week. <laughs>